my favorite movies, Amistad, there's this court scene where actually the lawyer is trying to kind of communicate how he's going to win the case. And he's talking to another individual and he basically says to win this case, you have to tell the best story because whoever tells the best story wins. I love that quote because I think we don't realize that all of us are involved in a story, we're telling a story, our life is a story, and the currency or the language we talk and communicate to other people is a story. And when you look at the scripture, I think that's the best way to define what's going on from Genesis to Revelation, that it's a narrative, God's telling a story, we're a part in that play, and something is happening. We are an actor in that story. But a lot of us, when we come to scripture, we have a lot of preconceived notions about what it is or how we treat it. And the way I like to say it is, I think there's a lot of sub-narratives about the scripture that define the scripture that a lot of us kind of elevate to a meta-narrative or, or to the big lens that we see it through, which is all right, but it sometimes can distort our picture of what God's doing, what Jesus has done, or how we should live. In the same way that if I go to a circus and I go into a clown mirror house, uh, it's gonna give a reflection of who I am, but it's gonna be distorted and stretched out and pulled out. few I think off the top of my head that I kind of uh, came with in different seasons of my life. The first one was I kind of saw the Bible as a sword. I was taught really young that the Bible is a sword. Now the Bible says that itself in the New Testament, the scripture cuts and divides. The only problem is when we elevate the sword imagery, sometimes it can have some wrong or poor implications because the truth of the matter is scriptures are entry point. That defines how we see God because that's where we get that knowledge and it defines how we see ourselves and how we think we should live. So how you see uh, the scripture kind of then defines how you see God, which then defines how you see yourself. And that's a domino effect that takes place in all of life. And so if you see the, the Bible as entirely a sword, sometimes subtly, then that basically is saying it's a weapon. It's something that I can use to hurt or to kill or to do bad things to people. So then if that's the case with scripture, well then that turns immediately God into almost like a drill sergeant or an army general of some sort where you kind of you get this picture of a big, mean, angry, he's all about business, there's no love, there's no compassion, and he is all about, okay, how can I enforce these weapons and get people to go out there and basically beat people over the head? And then if that's how you see God, well then naturally, if you're a follower of God, that's gonna paint you as a soldier in that army. And you've probably seen someone like that, or maybe you've had a season of that time yourself where it's all about the rules, it's all about the facts. There's kind of this begrudging submission to that truth, but there's no joy, there's no life. And usually those are people that sometimes can take the Bible and misuse it and hurt people and abuse people and really not lead to life or to joy. And so question here is, is that you? Do you fall into that? How can we see the scripture better? The second one is a lot of times I heard when growing up that the Bible is a roadmap to life. Now that's a, a, a true, right? You want to go to the scripture as a place where you find that nourishment, that encouragement, and where you find the right answers for life. But ultimately, if I'm honest, it also does not fit into that box very well. Like it doesn't tell me who to date. It doesn't tell me who to marry. It doesn't tell me what job to take. It doesn't tell me what college to go to. And to us, so a lot of us, when we go to scripture for an exact answer, it sometimes can really burden us because we think, am I doing something wrong? Am I not praying correctly? Do I not know God enough or something like that? And so the truth is, if you see God 
God's uh, scriptures as a roadmap to life, then the way I like to say that is that sometimes kind of paints God almost like an eternal Santa Claus of some sort because he's only there to give you exactly what you just asked for. You have a list and he has to deliver and if he doesn't, well, you don't like him anymore. But again, there's no wrestle like we usually see in scripture of wrestling through wisdom and all these different things. So we force God into that view when we say the whole thing is all about finding the right answer for the right time and for the right place. And then the bad part about that view of scripture is that then kind of paints you as the center of the story because now the whole scripture is not there about God's story and God's glory. It's there simply to give you the right answers, to tell you what you need to do. You become the center of that story and that's a bad place to be for many reasons. And the main reason is a human cannot bear that weight. Lastly, you can go through these. There's plenty of examples of different ways we can see the scripture, but the ultimate way that I like to say we need to see the scripture is as a story, as a narrative. And, and if you think about it, it really is. It's not one book. It's, it's 66 books spanned over thousands of years, and we have different types of people writing it. We have different types of writing. We have letters. We have uh, uh, songs. We have history. We have all these different things going on, and so only a story can kind of wrap them all up into one and only all a story can fit them all into that. And so God's scripture is a narrative. It has a beginning, right? That's what a story is. It has a beginning, it has an end, it has a plot, it has a climax, it has parts that go left and parts that go right, and it's telling a great story. And so if God's scripture is a story, then that makes God the storyteller, right? Like if, if God is a storyteller, then that means he's telling a story and that's what the scriptures are. And that's, I think, a real beautiful way to see God because that's what he's doing. He's unraveling and kind of unfolding this narrative right in front of our eyes and we get to be a part of that, which is what and how it defines us. When you get to the end of that table, you see that that's how we see scripture, that's how we see God, but then ultimately that makes us a part of the story. And that's really beautiful news because unlike the one before, you're not the center of the story. You're not the main goal, but you are a piece of the puzzle. You matter, but you're not the center of the story. And I think that is a tension that brings a lot of joy. And so the thing we have to wrestle with is Joy is found when we see scripture ultimately as a narrative. I think everything fits in its place when we see it like that, and that's where a lot of life comes from. Because every time you flip anywhere in the scripture, you could say, where am I in this story, and how does that have implications for my life and for my story? we have to start with is, okay, well, what is that story? If the scripture is a story, well, then what is that story? What is the beginning? What is the end? And so if you zoom all the way back to Genesis 1, you see a God who creates everything. God who creates earth and heaven, and he says it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's amazing, and it's all working how it's supposed to be. There's relationships, there's animals, there's a garden with all these trees and plants and food, and so God starts there. Everything is great and amazing and beautiful, but like most of us know, we quickly put a 
wrench in that system. It quickly breaks. It quickly does not turn out to what it's supposed to be. And there's something that pops up very quickly in Genesis that a lot of us don't notice, and that's actually the theme of what direction God kicks them out of the garden. When you read the creation story and you read the, 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 the story of the rebellion and the fall in Genesis 3, it says at the end of it that God actually kicks him out or kicks them out east, which is actually where we get a famous novel, East of Eden, or that's turned into kind of a phrase of the day, meaning going away from God or something of that nature. So they get pushed out east of the garden, and then Genesis 4 all the way to Genesis 11 is kind of about this downward spiral of what it means when you turn your back on God, when you get kicked east of Eden and you rebel and you say, I don't want you, I don't want your good world that you made. I want to be my own king. I want to be my own God. And, 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 and it keeps popping up over and over again. In the next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel, and it says he actually gets then banished east. And then the Tower of Babel, which is seen as the peak of all pride and sin, it says they migrated east. And so there's this downward spiral of what it looks like when you turn your back on God. But then it pivots in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham, or he's first named Abram, and he becomes the man of faith, the first one to live by faith with full trust and obedience on his creator. And it actually says that he is the first one to go west. He's called into an unknown place. He has no idea where, where he's going, which is exactly the definition of faith. He trusts God no matter what is in front of him. This theme keeps going, by the way. You can keep finding it in all of Scripture. When the mandates for the temple get laid out, the entrance of the temple is put on the east side of the temple so that then when the humans are entering the temple, they're going west. They're going back to that domain, back to that garden, back to that intimacy with their creator. So that's the story God's telling. And then from Abraham, God gives him this amazing promise that says, I'm going to bless the nations through your seed or through your family, meaning the curse has happened, the downward spiral has happened, God says, but I'm going to put it back together. I'm going to take heaven and earth, put them back together. I'm going to restore humanity and everything else in you, in a family, in a nation. And so he gives that promise to Abraham, and then that keeps going and links itself to Israel, where we get the nation of Israel. And I believe it's Exodus 19 or 20, where God gives this huge covenant promise to them that kind of is a way of restating what he said to Abraham and actually says, you will now be a kingdom of priests to all the nations meaning he gives a job to Israel, and that job is to become basically a group of people that is almost invoking blessing on the nations. They're supposed to kind of envelop this blessing that God wants to restore the world with and go out and bring that to the nations and to all the tribes and tongues of the earth. But quickly, if you read Israel's story, you realize they are rebellious and idolaters, and he starts to see that the solution to the problem, Israel or that family, soon becomes part of the problem. God continually says, yes, but that's not the final goal. Something else has to happen. And he keeps promising that someone is going to come who is ultimately going to represent Israel, who's going to be the faithful one. He's going to be a suffering servant, like it says in Isaiah. And he's going to be that one that fully does what no one has been able to do before. And that's when we get to Jesus. And so when you get to the gospels, a lot of us start there, not realizing that that whole backstory is what Jesus is stepping into. 
Jesus didn't have the New Testament. He only had the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, meaning that was the story he was living in and eating and breathing. And that's the wave per se that was kind of crashing over him that he was fulfilling, that he was stepping into. And that's where he comes and he goes to the cross and he lives a perfect life and he dies a death that we should have died. And he resurrects into new life as that one who has finally restored all of the creation, all of the cosmos because of his sacrifice. His sacrificial love somehow was this turning point in history where now in the resurrection, it's all getting pulled back together. And so the greatest news in the world is that Jesus is not just asking you to do a few things or to check a few boxes, or he's not saying Christianity is all about going to heaven when you die, but here and now does not matter. No, 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 in Jesus, in the call to follow me, there's the call to be invited into a bigger and deeper story, which that's where life and joy is had. He's inviting you to tell that with your life and with your story by entering into the big story, which is his story.